The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode of Punk Rock HR is sponsored by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome back to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Sarah Noel Wilson. She's an executive coach and leadership development consultant who's been fighting the good fight for many, many years. She's also the author of the book, Don't Feed the Elephants, Overcoming the Art of Avoidance to Build Powerful Partnerships. In today's episode, we're talking about conflict. We're talking about relationships. We're even talking about late stage capitalism and burning it all down. Sarah is a kindred spirit. She's super fun. She's super chill, is an expert communicator and someone who's passionate about fixing the world of work. So if you want to meet someone great or learn about her new book, Don't Feed the Elephants, sit back and enjoy Sarah Noel Wilson on this week's Punk Rock HR. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lori. So excited to be here. God, I'm thrilled you're here. It's amazing. Listen, before we get started talking about the world of work, which I know you're interested in, you're passionate about, you want to fix work, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about? So who I am is someone who is deeply passionate about helping people be able to lean into their best selves. I am married to an amazing, amazing gentleman, Nick. We have a fur baby, Sally. My undergraduate degree was in theater performance, theater education, and then I found my way into the corporate world and unbeknownst to me, found my passion of working with leaders. You know, I mean, other things that people should know about me, I picked up the accordion during the pandemic and and that has become the single source of mental health (laughs) care for me in an unusual way. So that's a little bit about me. There you go. Well, you're not on the podcast to talk about your accordion skills, but we (laughs) may get there if we have a few minutes. Well, first of all, you wrote a terrific book. So let's start there. It's called Don't Feed the Elephants. What is this all about? This is my love letter to my fellow avoiders of conflict. I grew up in the Midwest, so very much the Midwest nice, or what I lovingly call violent politeness is in my DNA. Really good at loving on people, really good at those kind of conversations, but when the heat got turned on, struggled. So the main reason I wrote the book and what I've been fascinated about with this topic is when I started to get introduced to what is truly adaptive cultures look like, what are kind of best practices, what do the best teams look like, being able to have and navigate disagreements and conflict, and I realized I'd never experienced that, either in my relationship or on the teams that I worked on. So for the last 10 years, I've just been on this mission to figure out not only what can we do, but why do we avoid? That became a really interesting exploration for me is, you know, what are the reasons that we hold back beyond the obvious? 
Well, being someone who's avoidant and being married to someone who's avoidant, I'm really fascinated by this topic because it took us like 15 years to even recognize that we were avoidant. And then it was like, now we got to have all the discussions. And that didn't go well either, right? <laughs> right. So um, if you're in a workplace that is either full of conflict or needs to have some tough conversations and doesn't, what in the book do you want people to know for those two audiences? I think the first is actually exactly what you said. I mean, I hear the pain of, oh, it took us 15 years. But I think even just the act of recognizing when we're avoiding it is a really powerful practice because we can have all the tools in our toolbox, if you will. We can have all the to-dos. But if we don't recognize that we're not using them, if we don't recognize what we're doing, we can't make a different choice. And so it sounds simplistic to say, right, kind of the awareness is the key. But if we can get better at noticing and naming for ourselves or for the team or for other people, I think we're avoiding something right now, then we have the moment to make a choice. And I think the other thing that I would say to that is how we can start to approach it is so often we build up these conversations into confrontations, right? We build up what the reaction is going to be. And I think that one of the things that I've learned and tried to impart is that people, they want to remove the discomfort of the conversation instead of understanding that that discomfort may always be part of some conversations. Because if I'm taking a risk, if I'm speaking up, if I'm speaking out, if you matter to me and I'm telling you, hey, that hurt, there's a risk there. And so instead of seeking to remove the discomfort. And what I mean by that is people will say, you know, when you say, what do you want to get better at? Well, I just want to be able to have difficult conversations confidently. And when you say, what does confidently look like? They said, well, that I'm not worried about it, that it's not hard, that it's comfortable. I'm like, well, that's just not going to happen. No, never, never. So part of it is, you know, I think that acknowledging it, being able to name it, see it, and then understand that the discomfort is part of the human experience of taking risks and speaking up and speaking out. And how do we not get paralyzed by that? but understand that that's part of it. Well, that makes sense to me. You know, on the flip side, as I mentioned, there are these organizations where there's nothing but conflict. And I don't know about you, but I find that the conflict is usually not about the thing that's truly wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Like people are fighting over politics and they're fighting over what's on the org chart and job titles, but something's really broken in the organization. So I don't know. What do you have to say in this book to people who are in these toxic work environments? They're surrounded by conflict, but they can't have the right conversation. And that's such a great point that you bring up because we see that in relationships too. You know, and if we think of organizations, organizations are just clusters of relationships. Well, with different power differentials. Right, for sure. Clear. 100%, yeah. 100%, 100%, 100%. And you know, and obviously structures and all of that, I think to get really curious about the conflict and to understand what's underneath it. And because the reason I say that is sometimes people will be frustrated. Again, they'll be frustrated about something and they'll be mad about it. And they haven't taken the time to go, but what is it about that that's actually frustrating me? Or what is it about this person? Or what is it about this situation? And often if we're frustrated with a situation or we're frustrated with a person, it's likely we have a value that's being stepped on or not being honored or is in conflict, or we have a preference you know, I prefer this. And so I think that's part of for us that taking that time to just get really curious about where is this coming from? And what's actually going on? And that's hard. I mean, I say that like, it's a simple practice, but it's hard, especially when there's a 
pattern of hurt or there's a pattern of not being able to reconcile or heal or to have the kind of healthy conversations that we need to. And we have to be courageous in that. You know, when I talk about curiosity, it's not comfortable. It's really looking and going, what role am I really playing in this? And that's not an easy question for us to ask. And sometimes it's a harder question for us to answer. You know, there's also this feeling that is totally legitimate where someone's immersed in conflict at work and they're like, why is this my problem to solve? You know, I'm a grown ass adult. Yeah. This is just a job. <laughs> right. Why do I have to then step out of my comfort zone, be the one who's like, let's look at this. Like, yeah, I don't want to do it. And frankly, I don't get paid for it. And I think that's really interesting and fair at times. But I don't know. You have to do it because you notice it. You're an adult. It's self-leadership. And if you want to break through it, someone's got to do it. And there's no cavalry coming. That's usually my very cynical, depressing <laughs> kind of take on that but, but i don't know I mean, you... but there's but there's there is i have wondered what role does our temporariness play in our relationship and our willingness at work now i say that with a bit of a pause because let's be real we don't always show up at our best for the relationships that are most important to us that are long lasting sometimes we're at our worst because we let down all the guards and we kind of know like you're probably not going anywhere <laughs> and he's gonna wake up with me again tomorrow morning at least yeah. I, I think <laughs> yeah. so i can be my worst self right now it's just temporary i really love that you brought that up because I think that's something we don't talk about enough. Work relationships are temporary, largely, and they're becoming more temporary. And I think that that feeds into, certainly could play a role of, well, how much am I willing to expend over someone that probably in a year or two, we're not going to be working together? And my answer to that is it's still costing you something personally. And so like, how can we do it to protect you? Not necessarily, it may not be in service of the organization, but it'll be in service of you and your mental health. But I think that's an interesting place to explore is just the temporariness of it. And then, you know, you brought up power dynamics. I think that is something that if there was one thing that I would love to have people who are in positions of power and authority, right? Managers, leaders, is just to understand how much that changes the dynamic. Because whether that's me protecting my power, sometimes I think we, I don't think I've observed and we know that we avoid conflict because we're actually protecting our power. Or other times people will get frustrated. Like, why didn't Lori just say something to me? Like, well, you're the CFO, you're the CEO, like you can fire her. Of course she didn't speak up. And that's what's coming up for me. You know, I was just thinking about how a lot of people don't appreciate how work could be a practice ground for more important relationships in your life, you know? And so I think to myself, like, if I'm having a difficult moment with someone in human resources, that's only going to make me better at like addressing conflict with my mom or addressing conflict with Ken, my husband. But a lot of people don't see it that way. And I wonder if it's because we over identify with work. Maybe we don't have a lot going on in our lives. But you know, if everything about your identity is work, how can you take a risk? How can you practice, right? It's so important. And it really isn't. It's so tough temporary to your point. So any thoughts on that? Oh my gosh, I love everywhere you're going. And I really am. I'm so excited about exploring more nuanced because I think sometimes we can say very surface level and very theoretical with some of this. And so I appreciate the nuance that you're going into. I mean, it's not nuance, it's pragmatism. I'm hardly nuanced, but I'm like, give me the stuff for my like, again, my Midwest family, right? You know, I like want to deal with this better. But you know, I have these family members who are like, suddenly so passionate about the plumbing industry. I'm like, this is bullshit. Yeah. You aren't, you know, like, <laughs> you need to work on relationships with your children, right? Don't worry about the plumbing industry. But plumbing can be a place where they can practice, right? I mean, I don't know. So here's what came up for me is somebody once asked me, why don't you just become a therapist? 
you would have steady clients, insurance would cover it. And I said a couple of things. I said, one, a lot of the people I work with don't value or culturally it's scary or a risk for them to do therapy. Not that I do therapy, but anytime I think we're working with humans in relationships, it should be therapeutic. And I'm like, the container of work is where we spend most of our time. And so if we, exactly to your point, if we can create truly meaningful development opportunities in my heart of hearts, I don't want you to just effectively communicate at work. I'm not interested in the bottom line. I understand that that exists. That's a capitalist system we're a part of. Like, it's not that it's not doesn't matter, but I want you to then go home and communicate better with your spouse. I want you to then go home because if we can become better, more thoughtful, self-aware, intentional people at work, then the hope would be that it translates to your relationships. And then from my perspective, and I think yours as well, then it translates to the community and the bigger world. And that point you bring up about our identity is I think we try to compartmentalize work so much. And we try to compartmentalize home, we try to compartmentalize work, and it's like, we're the same damn person. I'm the same person. Maybe I stretch in a different way, maybe I play different notes. And I think that it is a really interesting way of thinking. And I hadn't thought about it of what would it look like to be more explicit with that when we're working with team members. I mean, I know you have done coaching and you work with leaders, and I assume this has probably come up in your work, but like nine out of, times out of 10 when I'm working with a coach on how to, or when I'm working with a leader to develop stronger relationships, within two or three sessions, we're talking about their marriage. And they're going, oh, shit, I need to work on this with my spouse. And it's like, yep, like, great, because we want you to transfer learning wherever, because the more places you can apply it, the more likely you'll embody it and be able to do it. And yeah. I'm with you. You know, I was just thinking about how I have a writer, and many people have heard me say this in my coaching materials, that if I think you need to seek therapy or you need to call the EAP, you do that or we don't continue. Because so often, like so much stuff just comes up from a dumb corporate coaching session. That's like, I am not qualified to help you through childhood trauma or, you know, a fight you've been having with your partner for the past 10 years. I can't do it. I can barely do it in my own life, right? So I can address the things we need to do in the workplace, but sometimes issues just come up or they're bigger than work and you need the right person, the right coach, the right tool, right, to address that. And so therapy, EAP, clergy, like there are a lot of different people you can go and talk to, but for some things like that person is just not me. And I've learned to respect what I can offer. I think that's been my own journey as well. I'm not any good to you if I'm just spitballing, which is often what I did early in my coaching career. Well, I love that we're kind of aligned on a lot of these things around conflict, but I just wonder, you know, you've written this really amazing book. You talk to leaders and organizations about strengthening relationships. We often think of organizations as these nameless, faceless entities, and they're not. Like, they're groups of relationships, they're people. I mean, I hate to say it, but Mitt Romney was right. Corporations are people. They're made up of people in a weird way. What is the responsibility of the corporation to the worker, to the leader, to make sure that there is a culture? There is an environment that in as much as possible is conflict free and enables us to be our best selves. My personal philosophy is I would love to see organizations see beyond the bottom line and the profit and the productivity and to realize that you have one, people are giving you their greatest asset, time, energy, emotions. That's a huge thing that we're asking of people. So, I mean, a couple of things to actually truly care for the people that are in your workplace and to understand that you have this bigger impact on our larger world than I think people realize. I mean, to your point, like, here's my identity. This is what I'm focusing on in 
not necessarily seeing it. And truthfully, the organizations that I think are going to thrive in this new, whatever this disruptive time, are the ones who truly care deeply for their people, care deeply for them as a whole human and not just them as a worker. And then how they show up is with that. Yeah, I just posted on this because my colleague, Dr. Teresa and I, we were talking about this and there's all this energy spent on how do we, you know, people need to leave the home at home and we got to leave emotions at the door and right, like we got to compartmentalize and we can't bring emotions. As organizations, we're never having the conversations around how do we help people transition and like leave the emotions from work when they go home? Like we aren't, we We don't care about that. They don't. (laughs) But I think that the organizations that I admire, that I respect are the ones that there's more energy, there's more resources, there's more time and attention given to truly caring for the person. And let's be really transparent, that's not the majority. No, my friend Mary Ellen Slater and I have this ongoing discussion of whether or not you can have progressive people practices and late stage capitalism. Oh my gosh. I mean, can you? Because the system isn't designed to be people first. The system isn't, I mean, it's designed to. It's designed to be money first, entity first, right? Right. And to exploit workers and to exploit, yeah. And black and brown women and trans people and gay people. None of these people were part of the system when it was created. So this idea that you can have progressive people practices in most companies is kind of a joke because if push comes to shove, profit wins over people. It will always Yes, yes. So knowing that, I mean, you just said you're optimistic. You believe in this next iteration, companies that value people, that value emotion. I mean, in the system we're in, that's what I, I mean, I think we need a new system. I mean, if we're really talking, if we're really going there, (laughs) it's not working. (laughs) Yeah, it's It's not not working. working. It's a dilemma. I feel that tension of the system hasn't worked for most people for most of the time. And it's interesting because, you know, when we see... Yeah, we were recently gathering some feedback and it was really low, 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 low level of trust, low, like retaliation, very. And the person who was sharing sort of most fearfully was somebody who was mid-career white man. And we just kept thinking, if he feels this way, imagine what a black woman feels. Imagine what a trans individual feels. So the dilemma for me is this is the system we have, even if it's a small role, can I play in making it less harmful? I don't say that flippantly. We were having a retreat and my colleague Amy, she said, when you think of like the legacy of what we're trying to accomplish and what's the impact that we want to make, I said, I know that it's not as powerful to move away from something as it is to move towards something. But I said, honestly, whatever we can do to create practices that just reduces harm in the workplace, I just want to reduce harm. We have tolerated and we've become so accustomed to how it is working or not really working. We've become accustomed to the cost. We've become accustomed to the expectations of who is giving more so that other people can get more. And I think the one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is I am seeing a shift in a lot of people who I wouldn't have before who are starting to question the late stage capitalism. People who are saying, I'm literally trying to motivate people to work harder to make other people rich while they're not actually getting. I think part of the challenge is it's hard to imagine what could be possible when this is what we've known for so long. Yeah. And so that that's the dilemma for me is the system isn't set up to work for most people. And so like, how can we reduce as much harm as we can in it? Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this in my own life and trying to essentially reduce my footprint everywhere and consume less just to get small. But I have the privilege of doing that. I have the privilege of 
downsizing my life. I have the privilege of not putting kids through college. I don't need to participate in the capitalistic system. I hope I just can go retire at some point and scoop ice cream, right? Like this is my goal here. I don't need to, for example, be on Twitter at this point in my life. I've proven myself, right? I'm not an emerging author at this point or an emerging individual, but I was lucky enough to be early, right? So I can opt out of like this Elon Musk crazy ecosystem where he's forcing people to go to work. He's taking over Twitter. It's just all bro and crypto. I don't need any of this in my life, right? But again, these are all privileged things that I'm doing and I'm advocating for the people around me. I wonder what you say to new workers, to emerging leaders who have to participate in this, who have to motivate other workers or have to motivate themselves, right? Like, what's your message? Do you hit them with a dose of reality? Do you try to give them a little optimism? Like the new workers need something, but I don't know what it is. I mean, it's a great question, certainly worth pondering more because things have, I don't even want to say they've changed. I think they've been revealed. I mean, obviously things have changed, but I think that people are seeing things differently, that we're always there. We're just looking at them differently. And again, it goes back to, for me, it's where's the opportunity I have to make a positive impact? How to stay connected to something that's bigger than what's in front of you? You know, what's that really anchoring people to the impact that they want to make on the people around them, really anchoring them when we do work with emerging leaders or people who are just fresh in. We're not interested in efficiency. We're interested in how do we keep you really connected to what's most important to you? Which are probably relationships, correct? Yeah. And I mean, it's always whenever you ask people, you know, a question I love to ask people is imagine a coworker is sitting down at the table talking to their family or friend and work comes up and your name comes up. What do you hope they say about what it's like to work with you? It's always aspirational. It's always relational. It's always somehow adding positive value. You know, I always make the joke like I'm waiting for somebody to say, oh, I want to be a micromanager. And I want them to say <laughs> that I made them question themselves. But, you know, and I think about my own journey in my early career, I spent an insurance. Insurance is not sexy. Insurance is not particularly motivating. And like there's things that are questionable about like how our system is set up. So for me, it was how can I make the biggest impact I can positively? on how these people feel about themselves, what they see as possible for themselves. I was asking a good friend of mine, Steph, recently, who she does a lot of work in the the space of income inequity and, and housing. And, and I said, how knowing that that's such a steep hill and there's so, so many systemic things and human things and all of that. I said, what keeps you? And, you know, and she just sort of matter of factly said, I just focus on the world that I have influence over and I just try to leave it better than I found it. And I think sometimes that's the place we need to come from. And we just hope that people hold on to that as they get into the bigger positions of power and authority and try to change things. Well, I do want to wrap up our conversation by talking about your book and something really interesting. And that is that you considered the neurodivergent reader while writing the book, right? I mean, this is not something that many people think of when they're constructing a book, when they're doing the outline, when they're writing. So you're writing about relationships around conflict, and then you've got this additional layer of making sure that your materials are accessible to all different kinds of brains. So why did you do it? And maybe how did you do it? Just like a little taste. How'd you do it? Yeah. So the real quick of why is I'm a neurodivergent brain. I, I was diagnosed with ADHD a number of years ago, which helped explain a lot. <laughs> 
And when I started to formulate the book, I was struggling with, oh, it needs to be super academic, right? That was my world is, you know, all of this. And then a good friend of mine, Shadley said, write the book you would want to read. And when he asked that, it made me realize I almost never finish books, not because they're not great quality, not because it's not interesting. It's hard for me to stay focused. It's hard for me to retain it when it's a lot of heavy text. It's just hard for my brain to take in the information. I mean, and this is true of accessibility. When we take care of the people who might be excluded the most, everyone gets included in that. So we decided to design it for a neurodivergent brain. So what that looks like is intentionally using more casual language, a lot of visual breaks. My husband actually did the illustrations. And so how do we reinforce the concepts through different emotions, whether it's a little bit of humor, but visual cues. We use a lot of different headers and subheaders very intentionally. The goal is that it's an easy read. You know, some of my favorite stories are the ones where I hear about young people picking it up. And my colleague, Teresa, her son is 12 and he started reading the book. And now he's not neurodivergent, but he's reading it very quickly and he's using it. And we had another story where somebody's son who is autistic, who does have ADHD, saw the book, picked it up, didn't put it down. And I love that it was accessible to him, both from a standpoint of where he was cognitively in his development. But then he turns around and he's coaching mom and dad on how to have conversations. He's saying, hey, I think we need to talk about the avoidant between you and dad. I think if you just asked him for what you needed, and she was like, shit, he shouldn't be coaching us, but I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) And so sometimes I think that we aren't as intentional about making our work as accessible as possible for all people. And for me, it really came down to that question, write the book that you would want to read. So that's where that came from. Amazing. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you today to talk about relationships, conflict, the world of work, late stage capitalism. Oh my God, we didn't even talk about feminism. God damn it. All right. Next time. (laughs) Next time. Well, you know, Sarah, if people want to get to know more about you, read the book, tell us what's the best place to find you. I mean, you can go to our website, which is sarahnollwilson.com and learn more about the work my colleagues and I are doing. My name's on the company, but I'm certainly, you know, not the only person in this work. My DMs are always open. I might take a little bit to respond, but I will. My DMs are always open. I love that because my DMs are never open. So good for you for trusting well, the world. This might, I mean, it might change in a little bit. So for now, as, as of recording this, but always love connecting with fellow humans that are just trying to make the workplace a little bit better. Amazing. Well, thanks again for taking some time and chatting with us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. We are proudly underwritten by the Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head on over to thestarconspiracy.com. Punk Rock HR is produced and edited by RepCap with special help from Michael Thibodeau and Devin McGrath. For more information, show notes, links, and resources, head on over to punkrockhr.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.